you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to look at this passage of Scripture this morning. All right. If I could get a little assist on the pulpit too, that would be great. All right. We're continuing our study of Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to look at uh, this chapter this morning. Thanks. I'd like to read for us, beginning at verse 1 through verse, let's see, 20, as we start. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we walk through this passage of Scripture and we look at the tremendous mountain peaks that are here on each side of us, Lord, would you open our eyes to see really how powerful these truths are how much of a difference they have made in our world and even in our life. And Father, we thank you for it. Thank you for Jesus, for who he is and what he has done. In his name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, I went on a backpacking trip in Colorado with several several other pastors. And we were in an area that's called the Collegiate Peaks. It's down by Buena Vista, Uh, And it's given that name because these mountain peaks that are there are called names like Mount Harvard, Mount Yale, Mount Princeton, Oxford, Columbia. And they are all over 14,000 feet in elevation. It's a beautiful area. 
But as a flatlander coming here from Minnesota, I don't do real well with high elevation. It takes me a while to adjust to that and let my body kind of catch up to the thinner air. But one of the high points on this trip for me was when we hiked up one of those mountains near the summit to a trout lake that was up there. And we got up there with this beautiful aquamarine uh, colored lake. There was snow at the one end that was melting into it, almost like a mini glacier, you know, so it's clear and it's cold water. You could see trout in there swimming. It was a beautiful sight. And then uh, as you look back the other direction over the valley below, you could just see for miles and miles different mountains and the beautiful valley with its grass and its flowers that were in bloom. It was worth the hike. Well, that passage comes to mind for me, or that event comes to mind for me when I think about this passage of Scripture. Chapter 16 is a high point in Matthew's Gospel. We are climbing and crossing the continental divide, if you will. And there are mountain peaks everywhere. I mean, this chapter is amazing. Everything's been building toward this point. You have Peter's confession of Christ that's found in verse 16. It is in this chapter that Jesus will mention the church for the very first time. And so you have this powerful statement about the church and that He will build it in verse 18. And then in verse 24, you have this... (laughs) Apparently someone didn't like what I was saying. No. (laughs) No, And then in verse 24, you have this powerful statement about discipleship that we're going to come to a little bit later in this message. So it's an awesome chapter, and it will continue into chapter 17, where we see Jesus transfigured before the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. I tell you, we are crossing the divide, and there are mountain peaks in every direction as you look, and it is glorious. So we're going to take a look at these this morning, and we're going to start by looking at the first question, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We see in verse 1 that no sooner had Jesus returned to Galilee than he was met by a delegation again of Pharisees and Sadducees that came to him to test him. They wanted Jesus to show them a sign, some clear, unmistakable proof that he was the Messiah. Now, there are several odd things going on here in this passage. One is that the Pharisees and Sadducees were even together. Uh, These guys did not like each other. They were political enemies, if you will, and they were on different sides spiritually. The Pharisees were the most religious group, you know, trying to follow the law and all of their rules and regulations very strictly. And the Sadducees were less religious. They denied some of the major things that the Pharisees believed in. They were far more secular, and these two groups did not get along. But they were forced to work together at times in the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was like their their highest governing body. So you can imagine, this would be like bringing Republicans and Democrats together on an issue. You know, it's not impossible that they might work together, but it's going to take something really big to do it. And in this case, what was really big was that both of these groups hated Jesus. And they came to test Him. They want a sign, but they don't really want to believe in Him. They want some kind of evidence, actually, to test Him and to trap Him. 
The word that's used here when it said they came to test him is the same word that's used in the temptation of Jesus in chapter 4 when Satan came to Jesus to tempt him or test him. It's the same word that's used in both passages. And uh, they came here looking for some further ground of accusation. Now, sometimes you'll run into people like that in our world, too. If you've ever gotten a conversation with an unbeliever, you're trying to share the gospel, and they keep raising up questions, but they really don't want answers. They're raising questions more as a smokescreen or as a point of argument. They, they just don't believe in Jesus. They deny Him. And they just are raising these questions for that reason. That's what was happening here. The third thing that's curious about their question, though, is what more could Jesus have done? I mean, how many miracles do you need to see? How many signs do you need before you will believe that Jesus is who He claimed He is? I mean, when you think about it at this point, Jesus had already healed the sick, He had opened the eyes of the blind, He had opened the ears of the deaf, He had cast out demons, He had calmed the wind and the waves and the storms, He had multiplied the loaves and fishes, He had even raised the dead. I mean, come on! How much more do you need to see? And so here they come. You can understand why in Mark's Gospel, when he describes this same event, he said that Jesus sighed deeply when he heard this question. You know, how long is it going to be? How hard and unbelieving are these men? And so he replied to them that you know how to read the sky, but you don't know how to read the times. It would be like saying to us, you guys know how to read the weather. You know how to read the stock market and look at what's going on there. You're concerned about that. Or you know how to read the tabloids and you follow what's going on in people's lives. But you don't know anything about eternity and what is to come. You see, the problem wasn't a lack of knowledge or evidence. The problem was a hard, unbelieving heart. And the Scripture says that Jesus left them. That's sobering. He had said all he had to say to them. And now he would leave them and turn and go elsewhere. No sign would be given except the sign of Jonah. Jesus' death and resurrection would be the final proof of who he is. You see, once again in the Scriptures, we see that miracles do not compel belief. But for those who do have eyes to see, they are a powerful evidence for faith. And I was thinking about that, like in our world. There are people still today who want you know, Jesus to do something, demand a sign almost for them personally. But is Jesus obligated to do that in every generation for every individual? Isn't it enough that Jesus, the Son of God, came to this world once and demonstrated who He is through these miracles that were seen by eyewitnesses who saw all that He did, who heard Him teach and saw Him die? and rise again. For those who have eyes to see, these are powerful evidences for faith. The disciples and Jesus made their way then across the Sea of Galilee, and as they were in the boat, the disciples realized they had forgotten to bring bread. 
Jesus' thoughts are entirely in a different place. He is thinking about the stubborn unbelief of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so he says to the men, he says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. And these guys are like, oh no, yeast, bread. It's because we didn't bring the bread, you know. We forgot the bread, that's what he's talking about. And so they go into this discussion. They're in another area. They're thinking about lunch. And Jesus hears their discussion and he explains it to them once more. Why are you guys so worried about bread? Didn't you see what happened with the five loaves and the 5,000 or the seven loaves and the 4,000? Bread's not the issue here. So what was the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees? It was their teaching. It was their stubborn unbelief that the disciples were to be aware of. You see, when you look at these two groups that had gathered that day, the Pharisees were legalists. They're on one side of the coin. They are men who added to God's law their own rules and regulations. You know, they did that with uh, the hand-washing stuff, you know, and how to be clean externally. They would do it with a Sabbath day and how far you could walk or not walk and what you could do and couldn't do. And they had all of these rules and regulations. They missed grace. They missed what God was teaching in terms of His provision for our sin. And they focused on the external rather than the heart. And the Sadducees on the other side, they were like modernists who took away from God's law. They denied the resurrection. They said that this life is all there is, so you better grab it now, you know, and they're on that side of the coin. And what Jesus is saying is you can drive into the ditch on either side. You can miss the boat either direction. Keep your eyes on Christ. Stay on the road and follow what He has said. And then they understood. But that still leaves us with this big question I asked at the beginning about who is Jesus? Well, what we see here is that Jesus then took the disciples back into Gentile territory. And they went far to the north, going toward Damascus to a town called Caesarea Philippi. It was a pagan city that was known for its worship of Baal and Pan. Pan is the Greek god, half man, half goat. And this city was a small but important city that's located at the base of Mount Hermon and that kind of mountain chain that rises as you go toward the north. Another interesting point about this city is that it was also ruled by one of Herod the Great's sons, Philip the Tetrarch. And Philip the Tetrarch was the one who married the daughter of Herodias. Her name was Salome. She's the one who danced for Herod and who had asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so here you are in this city, this wicked, pagan city. The worship of Pan was both idolatrous and it was filled with sexual immorality. And Pan is the one from whom we get our word panic. This pagan god who was supposed to be the god of the fields, god of shepherds and things like that, if he met a woman in the field, it would cause panic. And in this place, Jesus took his disciples to teach them something very powerful. It was here that he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? 
Some say John the Baptist. We can understand that because that's what Herod thought. He felt guilty over John the Baptist's death and he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist who had come back to life. So it's not too surprising that the disciples would hear that in this place. Some others said they think that he's Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets that's come back. And then Jesus asked the disciples, but what about you? And the word you there is plural. He's not just asking Peter. He is asking all of the disciples, what do you say? Who do you say I am? This passage is the climax in the Gospel of Matthew. This question is the question that Matthew wants all of us to wrestle with. It is the ultimate question that we all must answer. And one day when we stand before the Lord and He asks us that question, it's not going to be, who do you think I am now when we see Him in all of His glory fully revealed? That's going to be pretty easy to answer the question then. But it's who did you say I am in your life? In the way that you lived, in the opportunities that you had, how did you answer that question in this, in this life? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior, and have you placed your faith in Him? Or do you believe that He's just a man or worse, and you've rejected Him? It is the question that every single person, man, woman, child, must answer. And Peter, speaking as a spokesperson for the group, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the Greek, it could not be any more emphatic. What it says literally is that you are the Christ, which means you are the Messiah, the Promised One. You are the Son and the only Son of the God, the Living One. And when he emphasizes the Living One, it is in contrast to these mythical gods like Baal or Pan or others that were worshipped in that place. The God we serve lives today and He reigns over the universe. And Jesus, whom we worship, is here present with us. When we worship, He is the Messiah. He is the divine Son of God. And Peter got it right. Peter identified Jesus as the Messiah. This son of David who would sit on David's throne and whose kingdom would never end. And as not just a man, but as the divine Son of God, He is God in human flesh. And it is no wonder that Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Salvation is a work of grace. And if we get it, if our, uh, if we, our understanding of Jesus is this, that we have come to recognize Him as Savior and Lord, as fully man and fully God, the One who came to redeem us, and we have surrendered our life to Him, it is not because we were smarter than anyone else. It's not because we were more clever. It is because God opened our eyes to see and respond to the Gospel. And we were saved. Jesus, thank You for what You did. It is also why in evangelism that we must pray and ask God to open the eyes of those who are blinded by Satan's lies that they might come to see and know Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? 
He's the Messiah. He is the unique and only begotten Son of God. He is our Savior and Lord. Well, let's look at the second peak in this passage. What is the church? We read about that in verses 18 through 20. Where Jesus makes this statement, He said, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What is the church? The church is the body of Christ. The church is the gathering of Jesus' followers in every generation. And the Bible speaks about the church in two ways. It talks about uh, the local church, of which we are one. The local church is that gathering of believers in a particular community or area. There are churches in villages and towns and cities all around our world where believers today come to worship Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But there is also the universal church that's comprised of believers from every generation, from all generations, all cultures, all times, all places who form one body. And we will not see that universal church until we gather around His throne in heaven. And we see that glorious sight when there are people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue that have gathered there. But the church is also a community. A community of believers who work together in love. A community of believers who are a witness to those around them. And this is a teaching that I think needs to be emphasized in our generation. There are many people who think of the church as just what happens on Sunday morning or a Saturday night weekend service. But the church is far more than what happens when we meet for corporate worship. That is just one part of the church. The church is a body to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to go into the world to serve. We are to practice all of the one another's in the body of Christ, to love one another and pray for one another and care for one another. And you can't do that if you are disconnected from the body of Christ and you think that Sunday morning is all that there is to church. The church is to be this gathering where there is fellowship and there is encouragement and mutual support. As a pastor, one of the things I love is after the service on a Sunday morning to see you gathering in the foyer and down the hall all the way through this building in conversations where you are encouraging and praying and sharing together. That's what the church is to do as we meet together. And then we're to go out and to serve Christ in our world and our businesses and where we work, in our schools, in our homes and neighborhoods. The church is a community of believers that have that kind of loyalty and love for Christ and for one another. Well, what is the rock then on which the church is built? There are three different ways that this passage has been answered. When Jesus says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The Catholic Church believes that that rock is Peter and that he is the first pope and that that's what Jesus was talking about here. But there are those in the Protestant view who also believe that the answer is Peter, but they understand it in a different way. They see Peter as one of the many. And they take the passage in Ephesians, where the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. 
The scripture does talk about this, how the church is built upon those who went before us. But Jesus has the primary place as the chief cornerstone. The majority of Protestants, though, hold to the view that what the rock is, is that it is Peter's confession of Christ. That his understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that that is the understanding on which the church is built. It is our commitment to Christ. And that's why, thirdly, some will say that the rock is Christ, and they will base that on other passages in Scripture, like 1 Peter 2 that talks about that also. Christ is the big rock. We're just the little stones that are attached to Him. And Peter is that little rock that is next to Jesus. What we do see clearly, though, here is Jesus' statement that it is He who will build His church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus will build His church in every generation, in every community, in every place where He is honored and worshipped. So what do the gates of Hades represent? Well, the common answer that we are given many times is that it represents Satan and his demons that work against the church. But I think that perhaps the better answer in this passage is that it represents death itself. That even death will not overcome the church. And I think it foreshadows the cross and Jesus' own death that is to come. That His death will not be the end, but His death will be the beginning and the birth of the church when He rises again. You know, this passage of Scripture took on new meaning for me when we traveled to Israel in 1999 and we went to Caesarea Philippi. And I have a picture to show you that's from that location. This is the cave where Pan was worshipped. In Greek mythology, this is where they think that Pan was born and there was an idolatrous temple there and there were pagan festivals that took place and there were sacrifices that were made in that cave. It is like the opening, the gates of hell. And when you look at that picture, you see this tremendous rock face that rises above that and then as part of the Mount Hermon chain, it goes back even more. You can see some pictures of people walking up to that and they are quite small. And when you stand there, you have this giant opening like the gates of hell and you have this rock fortress that rises above it on which the church will be built. And it is an example again of how often Jesus took the natural surroundings to make a point when He said, Peter, I tell you, that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I know when I heard that passage read in that place, I just had chills. I never forgot it. And I'm sure the disciples would never forget it either, the point that Jesus was making. Here they were in this wicked, idolatrous, sexually immoral city. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church. And the church will tower over Satan, over the gates of hell, and over whatever he will throw at it. Now what are the keys that are given to Peter? Jesus goes on to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I believe the keys are the gospel. 
It is entrance to the kingdom that's talked about here. How does someone enter into the kingdom of God? It is through faith in Christ as we proclaim the gospel. And keys are for opening doors. And Peter had a unique role in the gospel that will never be repeated. We see that in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, Peter was the first to preach to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. And he explained all that had happened in those days about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the people were cut to the heart and they said, what should we do? And he said, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He called them to put their faith in Him and the Holy Spirit came upon those believers. Door number one was open for the Jews. In Acts chapter 8, it is Philip who has been preaching in Samaria and people have heard the gospel, but the Holy Spirit has not yet come upon them. And Peter and John are sent there to check things out and to go and to preach among them. And when they lay their hands upon the Samaritans, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and door number two is open. And in Acts chapter 10, it is Cornelius the Roman centurion who is a Gentile, who sends for Peter. Even though Peter will be known as the Apostle to the Jews and Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles, it is Peter who is sent for. And Peter goes to speak to this Roman centurion and all who have gathered there. And while Peter is speaking in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And the Gentiles have come to faith in Christ. Door number three has been opened. And once they are open, they never need to be opened again. This is the whole world. The gospel is for all nations. And Peter had that unique privilege at that point in time to be the one that God used in opening those doors. But Peter is never placed above or apart from the apostles. He is a leader and he is a spokesperson, but the church is not built on Peter. The church is built on Jesus Christ, the solid rock. Let's look at the third peak in this passage, and it's found in verses 21 to 28. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. What we're talking about here is the way of the cross. What is the way of the cross? And here we read that from that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he would suffer and die in Jerusalem and be raised again. This is the first of four predictions that will be found in Matthew's Gospel about this event. It is the turning point in the Gospel. We have We are passing over the continental divide and from this point on Jesus has set His face to Jerusalem and He will go there to fulfill His mission to die for our sins. And in this passage what we see is that Peter the rock suddenly becomes Peter the stumbling stone. When he hears this, what Jesus has said, Peter took him aside in verse 22 and he began to rebuke him. It's as though Peter knows what the Messiah should do better than the Messiah. And he says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. In what Peter said, Jesus recognized the evil one once again. Jesus recognizes it is another attempt by Satan to keep him from going to the cross. And Jesus rebuked him. And then he goes on to give this powerful teaching on what it means to be a disciple. And he says that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What does it mean to be a disciple? What Jesus is saying is that the pathway of discipleship is the way of the cross. And just like Jesus had set His face to complete His Father's will, so must we. We are called here to self-denial. It's not my will, but yours that is to be done. We come and we say no to our dreams, our ambitions, our plans, and we lay them at the feet of Jesus. And we say, Jesus, not my will, but yours be done in my life. We are to take up our cross. That means we die to self and we live for Christ. It is absolute surrender. It is not some burden that we bear. Taking up our cross is not some burden or some trial in this life or some disappointment or hurt. The cross was an instrument of execution. And it means to die to self and to live for Christ. And thirdly, we are to follow Jesus. We trust Him to lead us. We follow His teaching. We follow His example. We follow His sacrifice and His service. And the reward for doing that, the reward for following Jesus that way is eternal life. And He lays it out before us. He tells us that the person who tries to hang on to everything in this life as though this is all there is and tries to grab for all the things he can get will lose it in the end. We can't take anything with us when we leave this life. None of this material stuff is going to matter in that day. But the person who chooses to lay down his life and live it for Christ will find it in the end. Which path will we choose? Which road are we on? It was this passage that motivated Jim Elliot to say those famous words that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The Christian who places his or her faith in Jesus Christ is no fool when he denies himself and takes up his cross. What you will find is life eternal. And in this life, life abundant. There is a young pastor from Zimbabwe who said it like this when he declared to his church that there is no turning back. He said, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. 
I have the Holy Spirit's power in me. The die has been cast and I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I know life by faith. I lean on His presence. I walk by patience. I am uplifted by prayer and I labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way rough. My companions few. My guide reliable. My mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. I will not hesitate in the presence of the enemy. I will not ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. And I must go till He comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till He stops me. And when He comes for His own, He will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Amen? Amen. I would pray that each of us would be able to answer the question, Who is Jesus in this way? That He's my Lord, He's my Savior. And He's my friend. Let's pray. Father, this is indeed an awesome passage of Scripture. And when we think of who Jesus is, how can we not surrender our life to this One who loved us and gave Himself for us? And Father, I pray that each of us would make that decision, be firm in our resolve to follow You wherever You may lead. I pray that we would indeed say no to self and yes to Christ. That we would deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you with no reservations, no hesitancy, no looking back. And Father, would you then use us for your honor and glory. Lead us where you will. Empower us for the work that you've called us to do. And Lord, help us to walk with you faithfully, loving you growing in our understanding of Your will for our life, committed to the body of Christ, which is Your bride, and encouraging one another as we walk this journey together. Lord, thank You that You are here present with us, that You've given Your Holy Spirit to empower us. And thank You for brothers and sisters who join us on this journey. May it all be for Your honor and glory. Amen.